Well, it's a privilege to be here and to be part of this Lenten series. And uh, I was asked to speak on reflections on suffering. Not exactly what you want to be doing on Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, Change the tenor of the weekend, I must say. But a very important topic, and one which today we go through we, is very important for us to think about as we go through this time of year, because today is Shrove Tuesday. And uh, in the tradition in which I come from, we had big pancake supper uh, at our church every Tuesday night and this time of year. And we clean all the, the tradition is that we clean all the fat out, because as we're coming into Lent, we get rid of all those things, in order that we can be about our fasting as we go into into the uh, into Lenten season. So you mix up, mix up this big whack of pancakes and you eat all the bacon and sausages and everything like that to get them out of your house so that you won't have to eat anything like that as we go through Lent. And uh, so that's what typically happens this time of year. And so for you, it, it means getting rid of candy, chocolate, uh, pop, uh, and most of the food in the cafeteria. <laughs> uh, so... If you're going to do Lent in a traditional way, you're going to be in trouble. But anyway, uh, that's not where we're going today. I want to uh, reflect on suffering and uh, take, take some time to, to use the story that, that Karina read to us as, as a jumping-off point. Our story begins in a garden, actually, that type of garden that urban dwellers can only dream about. There are flowers everywhere. There are trees of every description, rich with fruit, kind of like a gigantic Allen garden, which just stretches on forever. And moving among the trees are animals of every species that you can imagine. The trees are full of birds and all that rich plumage that you see on the National Geographic Channel. uh, It's all there. And in the middle, fed by spring, are two trees. And these trees are tall, they're full, and beneath one of the trees stand two people. One of them reaches up, pulls off one of the pieces of fruit, samples it, hands it to the other person, and history has changed forever. The tree, of course, is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the people are our primal parents, Adam and Eve. They made a choice which will affect us all. Their eyes were open. They could distinguish good from evil. But out of that choice came our human trait of choosing ourselves over the other. And out of that choice came the rending of all creation. See, sin entered the world, and with sin comes death and corruption. Decay. In the West, we think primarily about sin as the consequence of this, but in the Eastern Church, they place tremendous weight on the, the impact of sin, of, but also of death and corruption. Something happened at that point in time, and the way that we relate to our creation has changed. And we forget that. The story of Lazarus reminds us of this. This is a powerful picture, and it focuses the questions that all of us face on a regular basis. Lazarus had been dead for four days. For three days, the Jews had been coming to the tomb to make sure he was really dead. There's no doubt. This guy is dead. And as the story unfolds, we hear the questions, don't we? In verse 37, the skeptics standing around saying, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have done that? And Martha, she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if only you had been here. And this is the great question we face always as we enter into this issue of suffering. The whys. 
We recognize that Jesus can do all sorts of things. And it's because we recognize and because we've seen God do profound things in our lives, we've seen the miracles, that these questions have deep, deep force. Where is God in all of this? I expect you asked it when you saw the pictures of Haiti. But I expect you've asked it more immediate question, uh, points as well. As the story unfolds, Jesus responds to Martha's faith by saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, in verses 25 and 26. This affirms, of course, that Christ is about to do something. He is going to begin the process of a new creation. That early story is about to be undone. Something new is going to begin. But the fact that he is the resurrection, the life, is very important for us. Jesus is not merely offering us resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and the life. And he invites us to become one with him, to be united with him, to allow our lives to enter into his life. He doesn't just give it to us off there, but he says, come, be united with me, be one with me, and you will have resurrection and life. And that has all sorts of complications to it, doesn't it? Because what happens at the end of the story? The Pharisees, the Sadducees are saying, whoa, this guy can raise the dead, and if he can raise the dead, we're in trouble. Because if, we, if he can raise the dead, nobody can stop him. His followers will be totally fearless. Our power to rule is finished if he can raise the dead. Therefore, he must die. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection life. You want this? Come, be one with me. But does that mean that I've got to go towards that cross? Because from here, he then heads into Jerusalem, and from there, he stands before all those different people, gets whipped, gets crowns of thorns put on his head, and gets to die. I don't know. I'm not sure this is all a good thing. Are you? As you think about Lent and where you're invited to go, I read this story, I'm faced with questions. And the big question for me is always why. You see, it's so easy for me to come up with all sorts of answers. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Problem of Pain. And in that book, he has a lot of confidence. And if any of you have seen the movie Shadowlands, which is the story of the latter days of Lewis's life, uh, you know that he begins that movie uh, talking to a group of Christians, and he is the confident, assured Lewis, who is, and they're quoting from Problem of Pain, uh, he's got the answers. He knows why pain happens. But when his wife, who is appropriately named Joy, dies, his answers are gone. All of that confidence that he had has disappeared. Lord, if you had been there. Lord, if you had been there. And in Grief Observed, he writes this. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And what seemingly was so strong as this? And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? He who is, why is he so present? A 
commander in our time of prosperity and so absent to help in time of trouble. Why? You can do all these things. Why are you not there when we need you? I don't remember when I didn't have questions. I don't remember when I didn't have these questions. You see, I was born in a nation in Africa. And I was the only little boy in the group of little boys I hung around with who didn't have a distended belly because of malnutrition. I made it through my first years only because I had a Canadian passport, which meant I got to go to a hospital, which was a long, full day's drive away, and we were the only people in our town who had a car. And I realized very, very quickly that the fact that I had a Canadian passport was a matter of life and death. Why? Lord, why? And when I was a teenager, shortly after we'd come to Canada... I watched something unfold before my eyes, which was incredible horror. For the first time, we saw pictures of starving children because the war in Biafra had started. And those of you who are my age will remember it. And there we saw these pictures of, of children dying of hunger. And I knew where that war was being fought, that somewhere some of those people whose faces were showing up on the screen were children that I'd grown up with because it was fought through the area where I had grown. Lord, why? There's a randomness to to all of this. Lord, why do you not bless your own? Nigeria's gone from 4% Christian to well over, well, we don't know where. Well, nobody wants to talk about how much Nigeria's Christian today, but well over half. Why don't you bless your own? I've asked this question again and again as a pastor, I remember a young woman who became a Christian. She studied environmental science in university, and after she became a a Christian, she was growing, got a job at the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, and then she got her dream job. She was an accomplished outdoors woman, a great skier. She got her dream job with a national parks board, and she was sent to Banff. Can you imagine? I grew up in the edge of the Rockies. I could see them out my window every morning when I got up. It was, I loved the mountains. And she got this job, and she went to Banff, and two weeks after she started her job, she was skiing down Sunshine, or Lake Louise. She lost control, hit a tree, and was killed. And we as a church said, why? Where were you in all of this? I remember walking into a hospital room and sitting down with four young children, eight to 16 as they sat beside their father who just had a double lung transplant. He'd come as a refugee. And here were these children. Their father had a double lung transplant. His body was rejecting the, the, uh, the lungs. And he's hanging on week after week. And finally we said, you need to give your father permission. And I sat with those four children as they held their father and gave him permission to die. And a couple hours later he was dead and they were orphans with no status in Canada. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. Where were you? Where were you in all of this? I've asked this again and again as I've watched people in my congregation end up on the street because of mental illness. I've asked this around questions of my family. So I've watched relatives of mine die in tragic situations. And I've asked this as a husband. As I got a phone call early in the morning when the doctor says, are you Donald Gertz? And I said, yes. And he said, this is Dr. So-and-so from South Africa. And I'm telling, calling to tell you that your wife is in critical condition. If you want to see her, you have to come right away. And I remember 48 hours later, so I was standing waiting to 
get on a plane, the phone call. She was very brave. I asked, why? Why? If you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, he, she would not have died. Those questions are our questions. They're our questions forever and ever. And they led me to Job chapter 19. Do you know this passage? I know that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me. Even when I cry out, violence, I'm not answered. I call out, but there's no justice. He, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he's kept darkness upon my paths. He has stripped my glory from me and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops have come up on together and have thrown up siege works against me and encamp around my tent. I stood in front of my congregation after I came back from Africa with the body, and I, I read that passage to them at the communion table. I said, this is how I understand God right now. God is my enemy. God is my enemy. I can't understand this any other way. I have, I'm full of anger. I'm full of a sense of betrayal. I'm full of pain, and I can feel no other. And the important thing is that Scripture gave me words to say it. Scripture gave me words to say it because, you see, there was a tradition in Scripture which we've lost. Evangelicals are triumphalistic, aren't we? We love to win. And God's all about victory, overcoming. But in Scripture, there's this thing called lament, and we've lost it. And lament is very, very important. We need to regain it if we're going to understand suffering. We expect health. We expect wealth. If anything upsets us, we think we are being treated unjustly. But lament is that cry of the psalmists of Israel who are in exile, who feel abandoned by God, and they say, God, where are you? Why are you taking so long? What's gone wrong? You promised. You promised. What's the big deal? What? Get on with it. Deliver. You see, Israel is born out of lament, isn't it? It says that the children of Israel cried out to God in Egypt, and God heard their cries, and came down and delivered them. Lament. Lament. It's at the heart of the scripture tradition of prayer, but we've lost it. Lament is not despair. It's not whining. It's not crying into a void. Lament is directed towards God. Emmanuel Katangoli, who's a Rwandan, says, Lament is the cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. It is the prayer of those who are deeply disturbed by the way things are, end quote. And we are invited by Scripture to see and feel what the psalmist did. Lament teaches us that, we must, that there are things which we must learn and things which we must unlearn. I ask questions all the time because I can't do anything else. Africa's dear to my heart, and Sudan is always there. Eastern Congo, somewhere between 6 and 8 million people have died over the last decade. There's Rwanda, there's been civil war after civil war in West Africa. There's Angola, there's the Horn of Africa with Somalia and all. Infant mortality, preventable diseases, and it is the most Christian of all continents in the world. Lord, if this is how you treat your own, no wonder you have so many enemies. Isn't that the great comment of the saint? Lord, where are you in all of this? And so a couple of years ago, I went to Africa on holiday, and one of my goals as I sat in the red earth of Africa was to try and understand how Africans read Scripture. How did they make sense of it? 
And so I began to read and to work as I sat there uh, in the Sahara sun and the, the dust of the desert and the air uh, obscuring the sun, but not the sunburns, and uh, that beautiful red earth that is Africa. And I read, and I struggled, and the thing that I began to discover is that the African church had not forgotten the role of wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon in particular. And as I was reading this, it, they talked about how it connected with them. It made sense with their own tradition of wisdom. And I remembered something. I'm a church historian by profession, and I remembered Origen, who's a great uh, late second, early third century uh, theologian, exegete, scholar, teacher, preacher uh, in Egypt. And Origen said that there are three spaces. He's the first one to come up with this threefold taxonomy of the Christian life. And he said, when we understand what it means to be a young Christian, we call that the moral stage. And we teach young Christians how to, to live by using the book of Proverbs. And as they begin to mature in their faith, we begin to help them understand the natural stage of the Christian life. And we use the book of Ecclesiastes. And as they get mature into this contemplative stage, we use the book of Song of Solomon. And I began to wonder, what would it look like if we in our discipleship of young Christians started them with the Gospel of John, where we always start, but at the same time had them read Proverbs? Here's a way of wisdom. This is what it means to be a wise person. Here is how you are to live. And then, you know, when we get on and we start them reading Romans, uh, and, uh, you know, they start working with that, we had them read Ecclesiastes. Do you remember what Ecclesiastes says? For everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones, a time to bring stones together. A little later, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Or the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. There's a wisdom that helps us make sense of life, that helps us make sense of what it means to live in this world where that story which begins in Genesis is actually playing itself out in everybody's life. There's a wisdom there which reminds us that we are deeply embedded in this world. This world is our world. We are part of it. And the rending of creation, which happened in Genesis in the fall, is rending all of our lives. And there's no express line for the Christians. This doesn't prevent questions, but it roots me back in the Genesis story much more deeply. I still weep, I still mourn, but I begin to see my situation differently. And then Jesus invites me to share his life. You see, we're coming into Lent now, and I'm aware that Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. He walked into suffering, and he invites me to share in his suffering. He invites me to learn to walk in darkness. Not an easy thing. When my wife died, I had two mentors, both of whom were church historians, and both sent me cards. And ironically, they were in different parts of Canada. They both said exactly the same thing. They said, Donald, you're a church historian. You know where to go. And I went to the Cappadocians. If you read your Gonzales History of Christianity, story of Christianity, he has a chapter called The Great Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great. And these writers, these late 4th century writers, talk about what it means to walk in darkness. And when I met my mentors later, they said, so where did you go? <clears throat> I said, the Cappadocians, and both of them said, thought that's where you'd go. 
But what a rich gift. You see, there's a tradition there we have in our Christian faith which allows us to wrestle with suffering, a tradition which we've lost. We walk in darkness. Abraham sets out to go to a city. He doesn't know where he's going. God says, I want you to go off into the wilderness to get to a city. I'll show you where you're going to go, but just start walking. And he becomes the model for us as he heads out. And we're called to do the same thing. Or we begin to move like C.S. Lewis, don't we? Learning to live like Job. There's nothing wrong with living like Job. Angry, questioning, numb, but holding on. You know, at the end of that chap- in the middle of that chapter 19 that I read you, where he's so angry, God is his enemy, he says, but I know my Redeemer lives and one day I will see him. That's not a great cry of hope. That's the cry of a desperate man hanging on because he can do no other. And we learn to live like that because there are points in our suffering when we can do no other. But Scripture gives us words. Scripture gives us frameworks with which to begin to wrestle with what it means to walk in a world which has been rendered in a deep and profound way. Things don't suddenly become clear. We don't get the great answers to the question why. I'd love to say that we did. But the one thing that we begin to discover is that God abhors death and suffering even more than we do. Jesus came to die to defeat the powers of sin and death and the devil. He came to defeat the powers of death and suffering. He abhors death and suffering enough to be prepared to die to defeat it. And so my goals begin to change, don't they? It's easy for me to see heaven, you see, as through the lens of a Hallmark condolence card. They're great. We're, we're a culture of love sentimentality. No tears in heaven. Wasn't that a great song? Clapton? Wow, yeah. But where do we get this? The tears in heaven are not dried up until the very end of the book. I was invited to go to Ethiopia a number of years ago. And Ethiopia was fighting a war in Eritrea, and they were in a civil war down in southern Ethiopia among the Romas. And I had contacts with the leaders of the Roma Liberation Front, and, and I knew people in the Eritreans. And I was invited to go to do work on reconciliation. And as what always happens in these contexts, you no sooner get off the plane and say, we've got a preaching schedule place for you. And uh, so we want you to speak to the faculty and students of our colleges and seminaries. I knew this was going to happen, but I forgot my, any sermons. I'd forgotten to take them with me. So I'm sitting in the library desperately trying to come up with something because I know that an hour and a half I have to preach. And I went to Revelation chapter 5, the end of the story. Do you remember it? The scroll is sealed. And this great voice says, who can open the seal? And there's nobody And the seer begins to weep because there is nobody in all of the cosmos that can open that scroll. And suddenly he says, whoa, there, the line of Judah is coming. The line of Judah is going to open. This symbol of great, great power will break open the scroll and bring an end to this this pain. He turns, what does he see? He sees a lamb, and the Greeks uses the word of diminutive, a really little lamb, with fresh wounds of slaughter. Do you ever think about that? This little lamb with fresh wounds of slaughter reminds us that even in heaven, the wounds have not healed. Even in heaven, the wounds have not healed. See, we see wounds as something which are a problem. And as we go through Lent, Jesus is inviting you to become a wounded healer. Jesus is inviting you to take up, walk with him, and journey towards the cross. You are invited to share in his suffering. And the Apostle Paul says, there is no greater honor than that. Let's pray.
Lord, as we enter the season of Lent, as we think about what it means to be your people in this time and this place, we, we come with all the ambivalence that our questions bring us. We know you are God. We know you can do great and mighty things. But we come with questions, and we ask that you would give us courage. We ask that as we go into this Lenten season, you would grant us your courage so we might firmly and resolutely face the cross. We ask that you give us your courage that we might with great confidence journey with you through these coming weeks, that we might be remade into people who can share in the sufferings of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.